This is TrepWire Week in Review for week ending July 15th, 2022. I'm Martha Kocher with TREP, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS, commercial real estate, and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Lonnie Hendry, Head of Siri and Advisory Services. This week, big bank earnings kicked off with disappointing results, and the economic data talk of the week, consumer and wholesale inflation hit hard last month with consumer inflation surging a hot 9.1%, the highest year-over-year gain since 1981. This was on the heels of last month's labor report that beat estimates on the upside, with unemployment holding at 3.6%. But first-time filings last week edged higher again. Manus, we've seen a battle of the positive and negative narratives on the economy play out. Has the tide turned? Well, before we get into the data points, let me start by saying I think today's podcast should come with a warning label. I think that, you know, we generally tend to be glass half full people, uh, lots of green shoots. I think this week will be loaded with crabgrass more than usual. So we wanted to to put that out there. So if if your go-to listen is opening a bottle of wine and, and listening to it on a Friday night, you might want something stronger. If you're listening in your car, maybe put the mobile on cruise control. Right, there's is, is gonna be a lot of negative sentiments in this. And, and beyond that, um, I have a million tabs open. There's just so much to, to consume this week. And I was on the exercise bike for the first time in three months. So I have some oxygen deprivation. So this thing could go totally sideways. And, and if it does, our preemptive apologies. So let's go through the data. Nothing really positive to point out other than that jobs number, which is now almost a week old. CPI, uh, nine point, up 9.1% on the headline versus 8.8 estimate. The interesting thing about that 9.1 is it was above even the highest estimate of any bank researcher. So even the guy who was most concerned about a hot CPI number underestimated how hot it was going to be. Both headline and core were in that category. Both came above the highest analyst estimates. PPI, 11.3%, uh, also higher than expected. Core was a little bit lower than expected. That was the one modest green shoot we got out of the last two days. 100 basis point rate hike later this month is now clearly in play. I think going into this week, I think that there was probably a 50-50 tug of war between where we're going to see 75 or 50. Now I think that tug of war is between 175. And I think the last time I looked at the odds, I think people were betting two to one that that 100 basis point hike was going to be the reality of it all. And then on bank earnings, JPM missed on both the top and bottom line, built loss reserves, considerably suspended their buyback. It's a very terrible environment for banks right now. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, Morgan Stanley also missed. The only green shoot today among the banks was First Republic, which posted slightly better than expected earnings. And, and so really rough week out there. Yeah, I think you fit it on the head, man. It's, let me go back and fill in a few of the comments with some data here. Energy prices were responsible for more than half of the monthly gains in the headline inflation rate. Gas prices rose 11% last month. They're up almost 60% annually. Um, no surprise. We've seen that at the pump, you know, day over day. Grocery prices rose 1% from May. They're up 12.2% in the past 12 months. You know, so those things don't bode well. I did hear some chatter this week, you know, about uh, the CPI number being not based on current data. So gas prices in the last week and a half or so have come down some. So maybe we've hit the peak and we're starting to see some reprieve there. We'll see if that lasts. Uh, On the CRE front, a couple of nuggets this week. Rent climbed 0.8% monthly, which is the largest monthly jump since 1986. It's up 5.8% over the past year. Brokerage firm Douglas Elman said Manhattan average rental uh, price for an apartment surged over $5,000 in June for the first time ever. They reported the average rental rate being $5,058 a month, which is just unbelievable for some guy down in Texas. You talked about the producer price index, you know, was up 11.3%. Excluding food, energy, and trade was up 6.4. And on the job reports, non-farm payrolls increased 372,000, which was fairly significant because the estimate was 250K. 
but the unemployment rate was still at 3.6. So uh, average hourly earnings was up 5.1% from a year ago, but we're starting to see some soft pockets. There were some articles this week talking about the number of private sector jobs and uh, government workers or public employees that have left the public sector because they weren't able to keep up with the increase in wages and potential, you know, sign-on bonuses that the private sector could offer. So, you know, a lot of, as you said, crabgrass, a lot of potentially long-term negative impacts if these things hold, but maybe some silver lining in the fact that we're starting to see a little reprieve at the pump and maybe, maybe the worst is behind us. Manish, you talked about the 100 basis point increase, and it sounds like that was almost a certainty if you had checked maybe around midday, and that came off about an 86% chance to about 53% after Fed Waller Fed governor uh, basically made some comments that said he would stick to 75 basis points. However, that might change if retail sales and housing come in strong. So retail sales is supposed to come out, uh, I believe, tomorrow and housing comes out in in a week or so. So that seemed to cool off some of the panic, but it doesn't mean it's off the table. Well, it was an interesting two trading days. We're recording this on Thursday, July 14th. So it was a day that PPI was released and both days were incredibly similar. Miserable number, really sharp sell-off. And then gradually the markets clawed back. And after a, a real spike in interest rates, rates kind of climbed back. So there was like this re- immediate knee-jerk reaction and then kind of cooler heads prevailed. And if I think there's a sentiment out there right now, I think that sentiment is the Fed is going to jam through, whether it's 75 or 100, it really doesn't matter, but they're going to jam through a couple of big ones uh, for the next couple of months, because the single most important thing right now in terms of the American consumer and sentiment is that 9% and 11% number, right? If all you do all day long is watch Sports Center and you know the Braves game at night and and play golf during the day or go swimming or whatever else, the one number you're going to know is 9% inflation. And that's going to dominate uh, people's barbecues and, and what they're talking about and everything else. And, and the Fed is sensitive to that. And until they corral that, I don't think there is a, a priority B unless we have some kind of exogenous event that impacts the financial markets, right? Some kind of liquidity event or something like that, which is not out of the question. Right. With this much volatility and what's happening in Europe, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, you can't rule that out. But I, I do think that the Fed is going to go all in for the next couple of months. So you mentioned a couple of qualitative points that we've gotten over the last week. So in addition to a lot of the data points that we've just covered, we wanted to cover some of the input we've gotten from contacts we have in the industry and some other folks. Yes, it's, uh, it's more of the same uh, in terms of negativity. A Bank of America call today, they are expecting unemployment to jump 100 basis points between now and year end, which is an extraordinary move when you think about it. They're expecting it to go from 3.6 to 4.6. They also expect the S&P 500 to end the year at 3,200, which is down more than another 10% from today but not before it hits 3,000, which would be down 20% from today. So, so a really negative comment there. More qualitative things in Europe. Uh, analysts are now pricing in, if not a really severe recession, then a depression, right, at this point. That the, uh, the euro has now broken the buck, meaning the euro is now not even... Uh, a single euro is not even worth a buck anymore. It used to be worth a lot more than a buck. That makes European purchasing power nil around the world, which is going to make it harder for them to sell their goods. They are under siege in terms of uh, inflation, especially on the energy front. And I think that that's the kind of thing that, you know, if there's a tail out there, that's the one this week that I'm most worried about, right? In Germany, mandated energy cuts as a result of the disruption in the energy supply. We may get Nord Stream back online later this week, or maybe we won't. The Russians haven't really told us if that's being turned on again. This comes from Anne, uh, one of our longtime listeners uh, in Europe, 
and these are quotes, in Germany, rationing has begun, starting with lower hot water temperature and shutting down public pools. Energy prices are skyrocketing. Uh, she oversees a hotel in Eastern Europe where her PL is under siege. Uh, payroll and food costs are skyrocketing, and this will undoubtedly affect real estate across the whole continent. So that is out there. You saw comments from Diamond, political tension, high inflation, waning consumer confidence, the uncertainty about rates combined with the war in Ukraine will have negative consequences for the global economy, right? There's just nowhere to turn this week unless you're going to just completely shut down the, the financial news and cut right to Nickelodeon to find anything happening. <laughs> do they still do the slime on Nickelodeon? You know, like somebody's getting slimed. Well, we've just been slimed, I think. <laughs> I can only imagine you, you talk about uh, the quotes from Anne there in Germany and the word that jumps out at me there is when they start rationing things. I, I don't know how you find any silver lining in that. Uh, if that happened in the U.S., we started rationing, uh, you know, water consumption or electricity or whatever. It, it gets really scary very quickly. There's another quote here from the Google CEO from an internal memo uh, that they they published that made its way to the street. He's quoted as saying, like all companies, we're not immune to economic headwinds. We need to be more entrepreneurial, working with greater urgency, sharper focus, and have more hunger than we've shown on sunnier days. That was kind of a, a precursor to them saying they're going to be slowing the pace of hiring for the rest of the year uh, while still trying to support most of their important opportunities. So to your point, Manis, it's not just the economic bad news. It's not just the banks, but also some of these leading tech companies that for you know, the last 10 years have been very positive in their earnings and in their you know growth of footprint, headcount, et cetera, et cetera. They're starting to see the impacts and start to disseminate that out to their, uh, their rank and file workers. Yeah, I, I think across the entire economy, you know, let's take banks, for example, you know, the bank earnings started today. When you think about what they have going for them right now, it's almost a shutout in, in terms of head, in terms of tailwinds, right? They're dealing with an inverted yield curve, right? So there's no ability to, you know, borrow low, lend high, right? At, at, at the moment, they're looking at more credit losses, higher reserving because of those higher credit losses, no deal fees, right? There's no IPO activity. There's no Apple going out and trying to raise $3 billion in the debt markets to support a bigger dividend. You have a big drop in residential lending, so no fees there. Maybe some of these guys can make up some of it with trading revenue, right? Because you have bigger bid-ask spreads, and maybe that's a, a slight tailwind, but that's it, right? And, and that's similar for almost any industry. You don't talk about banking, right? The hotel guy, he has a pinched consumer, right? He has higher operating costs from wages and, and electricity. And, you know, while there's probably pretty solid demand in some places, over time, as inflation continues to weigh on this economy, that demand is not going to grow. Maybe it stays at where it is, but you know, you're not seeing double-digit growth in the second half of the year. Yeah, we actually had some other data here that said uh, airline rates or fees uh, fell 1.8% and hotel fees were down 2.8%. But if you look at those numbers year over year, airfare is up 34% on the year and hotels are up 10%. And that probably doesn't even cover on the hotel side, the additional cost incurred from labor and, you know, repairs and maintenance and other things. One other shout out uh, early in the uh, the pod today to our own Rob Jordan, who led our Tuesday morning update meeting for our company. You know, he gave a really good presentation around the tightening credit markets. So he, he did a pretty deep dive into the CRE CLO lending base and how it's dried up fairly quickly, underscored by the fact that not very many deals in the market. Uh, also noted that CMBS issuer lending has slowed considerably. So I think, you know, just some other directly uh, attributable points to, you know, the liquidity in the market being drained uh, and kind of goes to what you were saying about the banks, uh, man, is there's just, there's not a relief valve right now for them in terms of uh, being able to make sense of the market and, and continue on the pace that they had, you know, up until a few months ago. So let's stick on that point for a minute, because We've thrown a lot of macro stuff out there. We've thrown a lot of anecdotes out there. But let's talk about what this means for the commercial real estate market. You started to talk about it, Lonnie, you know, and those remarks by Rob were really spot on. For many, many months, 
you know, I, I've been saying this, that there's a difference between repricing of assets and the absence of liquidity and bigger problems, right? And I was very cautious for the last three months to say what we've seen is a reprice, a repricing of markets. We hadn't seen panic or a drying up of liquidity. And I was underscoring that by the fact that we were still seeing CRE CLOs. We were still seeing CMBS conduits getting done. We, we're still seeing and still are seeing a fair amount of transactions taking place, you know, property sales, that type of thing. And each week, um, you know, I probably take 10 to 15 texts or Twitter reach outs or emails or something like that. And then, you know, for the most part, for the last few months, there's been a lot of amen, brother, right? The sky isn't falling. Things are continuing to go on. It's not 2008 all over again. The market's not collapsing. And over the last 10 days, there's been a decidedly severe turn in that sentiment from people reaching out to me. Three or four people reached out to me either by phone call or by text this week saying, you know, now we've moved from a repricing event to a liquidity event. You're right. Liquidity hasn't dried up, but it has tightened considerably, right? The CRE, CLO lenders who rely on bank warehouse lending for their funding are seeing that screws tighten, which prevents them from putting out as much money as they might otherwise. CMBS issuers are getting more conservative, right? And all of this is leading to lower economic activity. And what that means is loans that are maturing will either have trouble refinancing, borrowers may have to reach into their pocket, loan extensions may take place, and the rate of activity, economic activity will slow. Thoughts, Lonnie and Martha? Yeah, so let me just throw a few number, numbers at you here on the CRE CLO data. We, uh, we track this in our tools. So in February of 21, so going back, uh, there were three CRE CLO deals that have been issued from January to February 21 to the tune of about 2.2 billion. If you fast forward to the same time period, February of 22, we already had nine deals in the market at about 11.9 billion, um, significant uptick. If you fast forward though to June, uh, those two numbers start to look a little bit uh, similar. In June of 21, we had 24 CRE CLO deals for about 20.3 billion. In June of 22, we have 23 deals, 24 billion in issuance. As of now in July, we've had no new issuance of deals from June to July. So we had 23 deals in June. We're still at 23 now. As it pertains to the property data that you just alluded to, potentially not being able to refinance, these CRE CLO deals by definition are transitional properties where they're not stabilized. There's some sort of renovation or value add or repositioning of the asset business plan that's put into the loan. Those are all taken out with this, you know, great idea that we're going to buy it. We're going to reposition it. We're going to increase rents. We're going to be able to exit in three years and we're going to make a huge profit. There's been a lot of headwinds for these operators during this time. So you had COVID at the onset. Now you've had this crazy, crazy uh, interest rate inflation, shortage of trades, uh, labor, um, increased lumber costs, all these things that they've had to deal with. It's going to be really, really interesting as some of these notes start to mature. How far along in that repositioning did these operators actually get? Were they actually able to achieve that full repositioning of the asset? Did they get occupancy back up to stabilized market rate? Were they able to see the rent rate gains that they had underwritten? And if not, you know, that cost of capital burden is going to be really tough for them. Now, some of these, I did a little research this morning. A lot of these have, you know, initial 36-month terms, but then they may have two or three-year, 12-month extension options. But you have to exercise those options and there's fees associated with that. So you may owe 50 basis points for an extension option fee of the loan balance, or maybe it's 1%. So if you're a property that hasn't fully realized your reposition, you haven't seen the upside in the rent. And by the way, to extend your current loan is going to cost you X dollars. It's just another headwind for them to face. And so um, just to give some context, I looked at a couple of deals uh, last week for a project I was working on. I was actually looking at Ohio multifamily. The average uh, increase in rent for the three deals I looked at that was underwritten on these CRE CLOs was to the tune of two to $400 per unit per month. So imagine that's the underwriting at origination, that's the repositioning plan. If they only realized 125 bucks a unit, 
that plan doesn't doesn't work out, they're going to be hard pressed to get permanent financing at the end of that term. So let me jump in for a second, Lonnie. Let me stick on this. Um, I, I think you know the multifamily market a lot better than I do. If, if you had to stick your finger in the air and, and throw out a number to say, you know, what are valuations on stabilized performing multifamily in non-heart markets, right? Let's throw out Miami Beach and Tampa and other areas that may just be, you know, completely inelastic, right? So let's talk about, you know, your typical uh, secondary or tertiary market, stable, but not explosively growing. What would you say valuations are now as a percentage of where they were six months ago? So I don't know, you know, it's a, that's an interesting question because it's, it's still very early in this cycle of kind of pausing the rent growth or delaying the rent growth. So we've seen a lot of stories coming out about properties seeing, you know, stabilized rents, but not the 10 or 12% growth. So I think at that point, the question becomes to the individual investor, are they willing to still pay today's price in exchange for a lesser yield on the asset because they believe in the underlying fundamentals into the future? Or are they, you know, saying that's too aggressive and we're going to cut the price that we're willing to pay? So my finger in the air would say for those markets, you're probably seeing a five to 10% haircut over maybe what you would have seen 180 days ago. My supposition would be that six months from now, those value declines probably are going to be significantly more for those secondary and tertiary markets, just because the rent growth will not continue to increase and investors are going to start pricing that risk accordingly. Yeah, I mentioned this on a call yesterday with an investment bank. We had about 75, 75 people on, and I mentioned that uh, multifamily, I thought, could have another 10 to 15% lower downside valuation risk from here. And, and I, I thought I heard some audible gasp. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but it is what I feel. Martha, let's turn to you. You live in the New Jersey suburbs. You live through that you know, hyperinflation for the last 24 months of residential. What does it feel like out there now? Are things starting to level off? Have they come down? Is it more inventory? What is, uh, what is your feel about, you know, uh, are, are we past that, that mania? Well, it's, it's interesting. I've, I've talked to people and, and we've had anybody who could sell their house in this area probably did. So you saw everything from uh, the folks that had lived there 30 years to the house that was abandoned and probably was going to be condemned, that all went on the market and, and actually was bought. So question is, and I know there's an issue with supply, there's just not enough houses for people that want them. The question is, even if there's no supply, there may not be the ability for people to afford it. When, when you're dealing with higher interest rates, you obviously have have a smaller house that you have to possibly afford. And that's going to be an issue. And that's going to be part of the problem, pushing people into multifamily situations, or you'll see people, you know, just like we saw uh, over the pandemic, leave their apartments and go move back in with their parents. So Manish, you may have kids knocking on your door very soon again. I love my kids. They're always welcome. I love that Sunday afternoon dinner, you know, <laughs> big pasta dinner, you know, everybody sits around. And while I'm at it, you know, I'm thinking about that scene from The Godfather. We're all sitting around on Sunday afternoon. Rest in peace, Sonny Corleone. That's oh, uh, yeah. James Kahn. That, that was sad. But you had a data point before, and I, I can't remember if we spoke about it uh, after we started recording or beforehand. You said there was, somebody was saying there's, we were underhoused by 3.8 million. Did I get that yeah. number right? Yeah, that was a Freddie Mac number that came out that said uh, we're short about 3.8 million housing units that are keeping up with household formation. And I think, you know, I saw a chart probably about a week or two ago that showed what the inventory looked like. And it's it's not a short-term problem. We've had this problem probably now for the last several years where we have essentially 50% of the supply that we've had pre-pandemic. So you have fewer houses that are out there and people are contending for them. And I think, I don't know, Lonnie, if you mentioned the fact that more people are canceling their home purchases than ever before. So people are backing out of some of the, the contracts that they thought they wanted to go through with for whatever reason. And there's lots of reasons why people don't uh, finalize their contract. Yeah, the, the data point on that, uh, Manis and Martha, was 60,000 deals fell through about 15% of the homes that were entered into contract. Uh, 
And I believe that was from Redfin. So, you know, sizable number of deals that, that were under contract that just didn't make it to the, uh, to the finish line. And that 3.8 million number is extraordinary because I think the last time I saw that number was three or four months ago in Barron's and the number at that time was 2 million. And if something's gonna prove us wrong about a decline in multifamily values, it'll be that, right? The fact that people can't find homes and they have to stay in multifamily and that uh, supports that market demand extraordinarily, right? Yes, some people will move back with their parents or, or take on a roommate or something like that, but it's hard to empty the bathtub uh, of multifamily demand if there's not enough single family housing out there to, to absorb it all. So, so a lot of negativity there, but hopefully next week we have more positive news from the economy. So we're going to go into some of the property sectors. I did want to, um, I don't know, we want to spend a second more talking about bank earnings. We did have our own Matt Anderson put out a piece a couple of days ago, essentially using our own TCAS model to project how the banks would perform. And we, we need to have him on the podcast because I think we'd have to give him a very good grade for his projections for Q2 for the banks. Yeah, I, you know, Matt is, for those that don't know, we don't, we don't talk about this very much um, on, on the podcast, but he is responsible for building our stress testing models from the top down for banks, our earnings models. He was also quite involved with our CECL calculations our uh, credit default model for commercial real estate and so forth. So a heavy duty quant and somebody who's been watching economic data uh, for a long, long time. So we asked him to put together an earnings prediction for JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citibank, and I think Bank of America, those were the four. And the one that has reported so far was JP Morgan today. So I wanted to look back and see how he did and, and his numbers were really quite spot on. JP Morgan predicted a double digit increase in net interest income that matched Matt's forecast. He expected non-interest income to be double digit negative. That's exactly what came in today. Total revenues he expected to be negative. That's exactly what happened with today's JP Morgan numbers. JP Morgan, by the way, down 5% right after the open this morning. He was expecting 120% uptick in loss provisioning from JP Morgan. The actual number was about 140%, which is really close considering that's one of those numbers that can go differ widely from quarter to quarter. Net interest income was within two percentage points of what he was expecting. So we're interested to see if he can keep this up with the rest of the earnings season. And if he does, we'll maybe probably put, publish all these numbers out there. He's a real validation of his research and his earnings projections. We'll start with office and, and try to get through a lot of the stories that we have. I did want to make a, a comment, Manus, you had mentioned that B of A lifted its uh, unemployment expectation to 4.6%. And there were a number of layoffs and restructuring notes that went out this week for everything from mortgage originators like Loan Depot to software developer OneTrust. Oracle even said that it's recently mulled re over reducing costs by as much as a billion and letting go thousands of employees as early as August. Rivian, GoPuff, and Tonal. So a number of companies looking to right size after many of them grew to deal with pandemic spending and now find themselves on the other side of that. Well, we've, we've mentioned this time and again on the podcast that CEOs and CFOs don't take falling stock prices, shrinking margins, and lowering a forecast lying down right? They move quickly to do things that will prop up earnings, that will prop up margins, and will help support the stock price. And you can shrink your commercial real estate space over time, but that's not something that's going to help quarter over quarter, but you can reduce headcount a lot faster. And Lonnie kind of pointing to this two weeks ago that this would be the real inflection point. Right. If companies really started to downsize in big numbers and that unemployment rate started to surge, right, that would uh, trigger renewed calls that we were in the midst of stagflation. 
Yeah, I think we maybe are starting to see that. I mean, when we talked about that then, there was a handful of companies, some of note that had made some announcements, but the, the list that Martha just ran through here, I mean, Oracle, um, Loan Depot, these are some large Microsoft, some some major players in the market that are making these type of, of, of moves. Let's continue with Office. There was a story this week from Lynn Pollock from Globe Street, and uh, she was citing some JLL quarterly numbers saying that gross leasing activity was essentially flat quarter over quarter. I think that goes hand in hand with what Rob was seeing um, in our research and what we've been talking about with issuance, that we are very much in a price discovery phase, that nobody's rushing in to buy something today without kicking the tires a second, third, and fourth time. Nobody wants to find out later that they've overpaid 20% for a property or paid 10 bucks more per square foot on a lease or didn't get as much TI or free rent as they could have because they didn't do their due diligence. So the fact that things are slowing, I don't think is any big surprise. Yeah, and to give you some additional context from that story there, she actually says that for secondary growth markets, their activity was about 88% of what it was in 2019. And then if you look at the gateway cities, their activity is only about 65% compared to 2019. There were a few winners though, four markets that outperformed San Diego, Miami, Silicon Valley, and Raleigh uh, posted transaction volumes above their pre-pandemic norms. And just echoing what we've talked about here the last couple of weeks, driven largely from life sciences and financial firms. There will certainly be winners and losers in this cycle for sure. So let's get on to the crabbiest of crabgrasses that we've got. Uh, and we've got a list, so you may have to pare them down to get through a, a, a few. Yes, I'll, I'll try to just give the headlines. Lonnie, you have your... Uh... Your inhaler nearby? <laughs> I'm ready. All right. The first one that we wrote about, I'll go into a little bit of detail there and then just run through the headlines. In Houston, engineering firm Bechtel is moving from 3000 Post Oak, where it had been for 40 years. They have 1,500 employees in the area. The big headline there is they're downsizing from 450,000 square feet to about 200,000 square feet. So more than a 50% reduction there. Uh, the negative for CMBS is that they are basically the only tenant behind an $80 million CMBS loan that backs two, I should say three 2020 CMBS deals. So that is uh, one piece of crabgrass in the CMBS market. Uh, if you didn't see that this week and you're not a Trek client, we'll offer that up as a freebie this week if you reach out to us on Twitter or email, we'll share that with you. Other crabgrass headlines in Washington, this is from Jacob Wallace of BizNow, Department of Justice relocating two of its divisions within DC, but reducing its footprint by 30%. In Knoxville, Tennessee, Warner Brothers has revealed it plans to sell its office in that city uh, as a cost-cutting move. Greg Kornfeld in the Commercial Observer, he really is a great reporter for the CRE markets, uh, read him consistently. Netflix has put its LA office space up for sublet. The space is at 2350 West Empire and 2400 West Empire. I, I believe they're looking to drop about 200,000 square feet out of about 400,000 square feet. According to Danny Ecker of Crane's online consumer lender, OpFi has listed its entire 80,000 square feet at Pru Plaza on Randolph Street in downtown Chicago. Natalie Castelny of the Philadelphia Business Journal, Pfizer is looking to sell its 2 million square foot office and lab space in Collegeville, PA. It's looking for more modern and flexible workspace. Keith Loria of Commercial Observer, just a general headline, downsizing tenants hit DC office market in Q2. In the San Francisco Business Journal, roughly half of the Salesforce West space is available for sublet. They have 400,000 square feet at five, 50 Fremont. Uh, two other places that I think is well worth taking a look at. The Real Deal and the Dallas Morning News both had big stories about the big swath of sublet space available in those cities. In the case of San Francisco, they have an interactive map which allows you to drill down into exactly how much space is available there. And it is plentiful. And in the Dallas Morning News, they list 16 properties for which 
there is at least 100,000 square feet of space available. So lots of crabgrass out there. And, and you guys okay there? You know, you, you guys still with me? Or we, or you, have you guys like uh, cut right to happy hour? Well, I'm wondering, like, uh, you, you kicked us off on the front end of this saying that you should have a stiff drink or maybe a bottle of wine. Do you think they're probably three-fourths of the way through that bottle at this point? No doubt. Yeah, it might be the stiff stuff. I was thinking before, we <laughs> talked about Sonny Corleone. You know, it wasn't just a bad week uh, for bad guys with him. Holy Walnuts also uh, passed away this week. He was uh, a staple on the show, The Sopranos, which, which got me thinking, Lonnie. You know, as we take a quick diversion, what would your mobster name be? You know, is there a, is there a Lonnie Henry Ooh. nickname in Texas that they they they, they give you to, to represent you? How about you, Martha? Do you have a, a a mob name that you know? I know at Trep they call you Coach. Is there is there a mob nickname in your past? The Hammer. The Hammer. Hmm. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I like it. And- I don't really think I want to know exactly where you got that, but. Oh yeah, I'm not, yeah I'm not going to share that. <laughs> yeah i don't uh i don't have a mobster nickname i uh, i'm still latching on to the uh loyal lister dan miggins you know texas legend i may get that tattooed you know on my shoulder or something at one point but you know i wanted to run back to a couple of these stories that you ran through manis uh, one that i think is interesting is the uh the netflix you know where they say they're gonna downsize they're laying off 450 employees one of the interesting nuggets about that is that building was just acquired by investment firm Prospect Ridge last year for about 107 million. So imagine you buy that property thinking you have Netflix in there for the long-term lease in place, all things are great. And then, you know, 12 months later, Netflix says they're downsizing by half the space. They're like off 450 employees. You're in a market that has, you know, enough sublease space to fill most states and you're stuck with the building that you just paid a lot of money for. So I think as we talk about some of the the revaluation, repricing, kind of the the reset of the markets. Those are the examples that we're going to look back at, you know, after this and say, you know, somebody has to buy at the top. And that may be an example of somebody buying at the top. Yeah, we, we should emphasize that, you know, Salesforce is not a credit risk. Uh, Netflix is not a credit risk. These people that are subleasing, they're on the hook for these leases. Tenant Health is another one in Dallas. You know, they guarantee their lease. You know, so the issue isn't with the property per se, right? The, the issue is, and, and for experienced guys, they know this already, right? You know, there, there could be credit events. Don't get me wrong. That could happen down the road, but that's not the immediate risk. The immediate risk is either they have near-term leases that are expiring, and this is a tell that they're not going to renew, or the sheer amount of sublet space lowers the price per square foot in that area and makes anybody who's looking for a new lease more aggressive in their asks, right? Asking for lower rent per square foot, shopping around more, asking for more uh, accommodations and so forth. And, and, and that's really the risk there. So for, for uh, newbies out there, people, tourists in the market, uh, knowing that nuance is important. Agreed. All right, well, lest you think there's no green shoots in the office market, there are some. Yes. You know, I'm a glass half full guy. You know, I got to I got to end with a few happy stories in office. Um, and there are, are some really good stories out there. So, you know, maybe now you can switch back from uh, the Jack Daniels back to that California uh, cab. And I got to say, you know, taking another diversion momentarily, we talked about rationing before Lonnie saying, right, that would be the, the be all and end all of of this country if we started rationing. I'll take that one step further, at least in our family and with my wife particularly, you know, we could live without food and water, but if we couldn't get California cabs, I think that, you know, the level of distress in our home would reach category five, you know, that that's, <laughs> you know, my one remark there. So green shoots here very quickly from Brian Jones of The Real Deal, covers the New York market very well. In the West Village, Metal Partners paid almost 300 million for a 220,000 square foot office. Why is this a green shoot? Several reasons. The property last sold in 2006 for 206 million. So we're seeing 40% appreciation in five years. A second reason is that this allowed a big 2007 CMBS loan that had missed its maturity date to be paid off. So good news there. Also green, 
this is from the Real Deal's Holden Walter Warner, uh, an affiliate of Cantor Fitzgerald, bought 200 Metro Boulevard, also known as ON3, from Prism Capital. They paid 439 bucks a square foot for the 300,000 square foot office. Um, this is about 10 miles west of Midtown Manhattan. Uh, the, bull, the building is fully leased to pharmaceutical company Asai, and it represents a big uptick in value over the last couple of years. In Richmond, the Richmond Business Sense noted that Gateway Plaza sold for 150 million. That's the highest per square foot price in Richmond since 2005. The property sold for 104 million seven years ago. 44% appreciation since then. So some good stories out there, and hopefully that allows you to go into the weekend um, on a more upbeat note. I think this is where we have Haley cue the motivational music for Lonnie's screenplay story. <laughs> yeah, so I tried working on a narrator voice all week. It just didn't quite happen. So it all started with a boy in a dream. Oh, wait, that's a, that's a different screenplay. Uh, so we have the Durst organization, Manus teased this out last week, uh, Times Square Tower. They filled their last vacancy, uh, 151 West 42nd Street, not long ago known as Four Times Square. Uh, big step forward and return to full occupancy uh, with a new lease for Chicago Trading Company. They just signed on for about 69,000 square foot taking up floors 36 and 37, which were the last two full floor plates available. It's a 52-story building, 1.7 million square foot tower um, that was empty after the original tenants, Condé Nast and ARPS, moved out a few years ago. So I think, again, as Manis has pointed out, there are some green shoots um, in the marketplace. This is one that took a lot of fertilizer, took a lot of water, took a lot of time, uh, but it finally feels like they've maybe reached the pinnacle, got the building leased up, and we'll see where it goes from here. So moving to retail, we have mostly green shoots in retail this week, but there was one story that uh, definitely wasn't positive, and that was that Starbucks announced that they're permanently closing about 16 of their urban locations. And the reason is crime. Crime's gotten out of control, and they can't, they can't get a handle on it. So places in Los Angeles, Portland, Philly, D.C. Uh, are some of the places those stores will be closed by the end of the month. There's a theme there, right? And the theme is those cities have all had headlines over the last five years, with the exception of D.C., of civil unrest or heightened crime. And, you know, I, I've never been to Seattle, so and I've never been to Portland, so I don't know what those markets are like. But you do know that once a narrative takes hold, and once a city gets a reputation for being uh, under duress, whether it's New York or Portland or Seattle or Philadelphia, right? That's it's a hard narrative to shape, and people stop or think twice before saying, "Let's go downtown and, and check out that new restaurant." You know, so so the, these types of headlines they kind of break my heart. You know, uh, I love New York. I always have loved New York. Uh, I always want to see it thrive, but I know when when things go south on it. Um, not only does it burnish the reputation, is that the word burnish? Is yes. burnish good or bad? Burnish. Burnish. Hurt. I'm going to yes. go with hurt. Yes, I don't have my thesaurus. Easier word. Hurt the reputation of the city, which, which I don't care for, uh, but it hurts our neighbors, right? It hurts the workers and uh, the job market and the restaurateurs and the hotel workers and so forth. So, uh, you know, I hope these cities can, can correct course and, and make things better. Yeah, from a what my professor had on here, what you just described was a psychological stigma that gets attached to the properties or the markets, but does have an impact negatively or positively in some cases. This is obviously negative psychological stigma, which is hard to shake. And it also, you know, the, these properties suffer from what we would consider to be an externality or uh, external obsolescence that the individual property owner can't remedy themselves. It's a force bigger than the property itself. And so to your point, man, is hopefully they can get these cities turned around. Although I heard the um, the CEO from Starbucks today was saying uh, this is just the first set of stores that are going to be closing, um, that there's more to come. So uh, maybe more bad news for Starbucks in the coming weeks. So I got to correct the record here. Burnish. It's tarnish. To, yeah. Yes. Tarnish was the word. Oh I was going to say burnish goodness. is to polish. All right. 
for those listeners out there that have already sent me a thesaurus, yeah, take I it don't back. need another thesaurus. <laughs> take it back. It's I struggle to say thesaurus, and I certainly don't know a, a synonym for thesaurus. There you go. All right. So let's uh, let's talk about some green shoots in retail. Yeah, let's run through these real quickly. Um, as I said in the beginning, I have about 75 tabs open. So let me find it uh, again here. So this is from William Thornton of AL.com in Alabama. Uh, Birmingham's Brook Highland Place, which is a Lowe's anchored property, was sold for $80 million. That's a 550,000 square foot uh, property in Birmingham. In, um, let's see, Atlanta, Georgia, Madison Yards, which is 162,000 square foot property within a broader um, lifestyle center in that city that sold for $80 million. It's a real nice price for just 162,000 square feet. From Ben Vandermeer of the Sacramento Business Journal, Blue Oaks Town Center was sold for $77.5 million. This is a 525K square foot property in Henderson, Nevada. Uh, anchors include Sportsman's Warehouse, Century Theaters, and Petco. And Brian Bandell of the South Florida Business Journal. You know, I call him the hardest working man in South Florida. That guy's putting out four or five stories a day for his business journal and writes novels in his free time. The shops at Mary Brickell Village in Miami sold for $216,935 a square foot. So if we didn't lower your blood pressure with those office green shoots, hopefully we did so with these retail green shoots. What with these voice retail, was that exactly? What with, these, with these retail green shoots. I'm not sure what that voice was. It was my oh. FM radio, you know. Relaxed Friday afternoon. Very nice. Very Let's nice. Take it down a notch and, and put on and some Van Morrison. Very nice. And while we're still feeling good, we got a multifamily story. Yeah, just one quick one here. Uh, Albie Gallum of Crane Chicago, another guy who covers the CRE markets terrifically, in his case, the Chicago markets, noted that in Palantine, uh, the suburb of Chicago, the Bourbon Square apartment property sold for $140 million bucks. The property is a 612-unit asset. It's the most ever paid for a multifamily property uh, asset in suburban Chicago on a per-unit basis. I think it's uh, it's proper that we close out the, uh, the multifamily and the green shoots with a property called Bourbon Square based on today's dialogue. Yes, exactly. Yes. And uh, shout outs, NL sent us a couple of Chicago stories, both hotel stories. Yes, Anne is, uh, you know, covers both continents. She gave us some of those tips from Eastern Europe and London about water rationing. She also told us this was kind of, I don't know, a little bit of dark humor. She said hotels in Eastern Europe are able to uh, attract more market share by offering unlimited hot water and unlimited water because everywhere else there's rationing going on and she's able to gain market share with those kind of promotions. But we do have a couple of things moving in Palmer. The Palmer house in Chicago has been cleared for a foreclosure sale that had been tied up in judicial proceedings. Value on that hotel was cut sharply years ago. It's been in uh, CMBS purgatory for a long, long time. You know, it's like uh, Clancy's first law of commercial real estate, right? It's like Newton's first law of physics, right? His was a body in motion, stays in motion. You know, mine is a property in CMBS purgatory, stays in purgatory for long, long periods of time. Um, I'll come up with, with you know, rule two and rule You know, that'll three. end up in a textbook somewhere. I know it. <laughs> or a t-shirt or maybe a bumper sticker. We'll see. We are all over the place today. I don't know where we're, uh, we're headed next. And Murray W. Uh, shared a story uh, from The Real Deal on positive leasing activity experience this year in O'Hare. Loves the podcast and enjoys them uh, every week. Matt O. asked us, otherwise known as Oz, by the way, asked us about the affordable housing webinar, which uh, we have upcoming in a couple of weeks. If you're interested in that, send us an email and we'll send that to you. And Professor Siri on Twitter 
commenting on the bank earnings projections. He says, uh, basic allowances for loan losses will increase and they can blame macro issues. We're talking about the banks, of course, once we see major loan write downs, then the fund really starts. So we'll see how that goes. And Stephen, you asked us a question for some info on Bed Bath & Beyond that we're having one of the analysts send him. And some programming notes, Trep will be at SF Vegas, July 17th. If you want to meet up with us, send us an email and we'll see what we can do to meet you there. And Trep is hosting an affordable housing community call. Again, if you're interested in that, uh, send us an email and we'll give you the link to register. And lastly, our second annual series sentiment survey is just out. We would love to hear your thoughts and predictions. We'll share those with everyone uh, coming in a couple of weeks after we've collected a number of responses. And we usually get some pretty interesting responses from the folks that send that in. I'll throw out one more shout out. We talked about Republic Bank earlier before. Old friend, or I should say longtime friend. My wife says never to say old friend. She says, you are old yeah. and everybody else your age is mature and you're not mature. Those are her, you know, her, <laughs> her, her regards. But longtime friend, Gaia Erkin, uh, was named CEO of Greystone. Uh, it's a great position, great firm. We were very happy for her to see her taking that role. But her prior role had been with First Republic and uh, she was responsible. She was their CEO for a couple of years, responsible for their, their growth and success over the last period of time. So wanted to give out a shout out, which is about two or three weeks overdue. And in closing, a story that has nothing to do with CRE, of course, uh, but music, which is another one of our topics of musing on many occasion. And Manis, uh, I know you know this, the, the guys that uh, were charged Tuesday for allegedly stealing the handwritten notes and lyrics from Don Henley, the Eagles co-founder. Apparently those guys uh, are, have gotten caught in trouble. And um, they've got some kind of half-baked story of how they ended up with those notes and lyrics, but they've tried to pawn them off for about a million dollars and got caught. Well, a little bit of inside baseball that, you know, I write these things, these notes that I keep next to my laptop before every one of our recordings, and they're really chicken scratch. And I, I don't value them very much. And usually I just kind of rip them up and throw them away. And, you know, maybe I should start saving them. Maybe they'll be of value someday. And, you know, we'll put, they'll be like the, uh, the Bob Dylan lost tapes, right? We'll put out a, uh, you know, for 1999, you could buy the best of the Martha Lani and Manish show. And for 39.99, you get, you know, the box set with, with some outtakes and maybe some handwritten notes. What do you think? Those might be good, but I, I think the real money is something Haley's already working on, which is the outtakes from our podcast. I am pretty sure she has a vault and at some point, we're going to see them on like BuzzFeed or something. That's uh, something I could see, you know, Lonnie Lugnuts using that to exploit <laughs> me, right? Using that to blackmail me. And, you know, if you don't take me out to the palm this week, I'm going to have Haley release the, you know, the deep cuts. Yeah, so I'll be on a uh, beach somewhere with a cold drink. <laughs> and with that, we'll close. Thanks for our producer, Haley Keen. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or a comment, send your email to podcast at trep.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right. <laughs>